millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is an RNZ podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about the most important wars in New Zealand history. These are the conflicts which broke Māori sovereignty of Aotearoa. They're the reason New Zealand is governed according to British legal traditions and not tikanga Māori. It's the reason most land is owned by Pākehā instead of Māori. And it's the reason my hometown in Hamilton is named after a British officer who never even visited the place. Yeah, ever walked down a Grey Street or a Von Tempsky Street or a Cameron Street? The legacy of the New Zealand wars surrounds us every day, but it's a legacy we don't often talk about. I'm William Ray. And I'm Lee Madam and McLaughlin. And this is the Aotearoa History Show. We range ourselves without fear beside Britain. Where she goes, we go. Where she stands, we stand. The New Zealander Hillary has succeeded in conquering Mount Everest. Now the New Zealand is in front. Now the New Zealand wins from Mount of Belgium. The real shambles here at Rugby Park, Hamilton. Red smoke bombs being thrown by the demonstrators. We are marching to Parliament. And no more land to be sold. Last episode, we talked about the Northern War, the first major armed conflict between the British and Māori. All the way through that war, the British settlers in the new capital city of Auckland had been nervous. And they weren't just nervous about Honeheke and his allies in Northland. When they looked south, they could see the enormous, powerful tribes of the Waikato region. What if those Waikato Māori decided to join forces with Honeheke and march north to attack Auckland? British settlers were seriously worried about this. But that attack never happened. That's because Waikato Māori didn't think the Northern War had anything to do with them. And that makes sense if you remember Māori were, and in many ways still are, a tribal people. If Ngāpuhi got taken down a peg by the British, that wasn't necessarily a bad thing for Māori and the rest of the North Island. Māori thought of their identity more in terms of their links with hapū, or iwi, rather than race. Māori nationalism was in its infancy. Also, Waikato Māori saw Pākehā in Auckland as valuable trading partners. The great Tainui chief, Potatote Wedowedo, referred to Auckland as the hem of his cloak, meaning it was under the protection of his mana. But that didn't mean Waikato Māori weren't worried about Pākehā. By this point, the Pākehā population was skyrocketing. When the Treaty of Waitangi was signed in 1840, there were about 2,000 Europeans in New Zealand. Ten years later, there were more than 20,000 and rising. Pretty much all all of those Pākehā desperately wanted land. It was the dream that had launched them on the risky voyage all the way around the world to Aotearoa. 
For many, the only way to make that risk pay off was to buy and farm land. In 1846, land disputes kicked off fighting between colonists and Māori in the Hutt Valley. Mostly, this was Ngāti Rangatahi and Ngāti Tama, with support from Ngāti Tua. It started a bit like the Waido incident a few years earlier. The New Zealand company made a dodgy land deal, which led to a big scrap over where to draw the border between Māori and Pākehā land. Governor George Grey sent in troops to support the colonists. With the help of some Māori allies, these troops drove local Māori off their land, which Grey then handed over to the colonists. And Governor Grey wasn't just taking land at gunpoint. He also directed government agents to take a more aggressive approach to land sales. He convinced Ngaitahu to sell basically the entire South Island to the Crown, The Canterbury purchase alone was 13 million acres. And for this vast area of land, the iwi got less than a penny an acre. Plus, some promises that the Crown would set up special reserves for local Māori. Most of those promises to set aside land, though, were never honoured, despite protests from Ngaitahu. But on the whole... Gray actually had a pretty good relationship with Māori. He often travelled with powerful chiefs and he consulted with them on tricky policy questions. He organised loans for Māori people to buy farm equipment. He even built hospitals for Māori to use. In the year 1852, he wrote a letter back to England saying... Both races already form one harmonious community, insensibly forming one people. Then, job done, Grey left Aotearoa and sailed off to South Africa to run Cape Colony. But that wasn't the last we saw of him. In the meantime, cracks start to form in that harmonious community. By the late 1850s, there were nearly 60,000 Pākehā in New Zealand. For the first time in Aotearoa's history, Māori were outnumbered and the pressure for land was getting more intense. Many Māori realised the Treaty of Waitangi was not going to be enough to protect their land, but at the same time, they didn't want war. So they start coming up with other tactics. Lots of Māori thought the problem was that they weren't negotiating with the British on equal terms. Some rangatira like Tamihana Te Rauparaha and Piri Kawo had travelled to the UK and met the Queen. They saw how British were unified under the leadership of Queen Victoria, whereas Māori leadership was divided by iwi or hapū. When they got home, they kicked off the idea of creating a similar kind of unifying leader for Māori, a Māori king, with the authority to deal with the British on behalf of all tangata whenua, or at least on behalf of a big group of Māori who signed up to the idea. These Māori called themselves the Kingitanga movement. And we need to point out, this isn't like Rob Stark declaring himself king in the north in Game of Thrones. Kingitanga weren't trying to rebel against the British crown. One of Kingitanga's founders, the Ngāti Hauarangatira Wurimu Tamihana, had a good way of explaining things. Tamihana said Kingitanga, the governor and the crown, were like three sticks. 
The kingitanga stick represented the Māori king's authority over Māori land and people. The governor's stick represented his authority over Pākehā in New Zealand. The third stick was balanced on top of the other two, and it represented Queen Victoria and the law of God. And according to the Reo Māori version of Te Tiriti, this should all have been fine. That version said Māori had the right to rangatiratanga, to self-government. So if they wanted a king... All good. The first Māori king was Pōtato Te Wirowiro, Paramount Rangatira of Waikato. To say Te Wirowiro had a lot of mana would be an understatement. He was a respected leader with wakapapa links to pretty much every major iwi in the North Island. He was also on pretty good terms with Pākehā because of his vow to defend Auckland. But he was also a very old man. Te Wirowiro only led Kingitanga for two years before he died, and the crown passed to his son Tapuiao. And Tapuiao immediately had to deal with yet another fight over a dodgy land deal. This time it was in New Plymouth, and it quickly escalated into open war between the British Army and Taranaki Māori. The new governor, Gore Brown, sent in hundreds of troops, but just like in the Northern War, those troops had a hard time assaulting heavily fortified pa. Hundreds of people died on both sides, and millions of dollars worth of property was destroyed. Governor Brown lost his job, and the authorities brought back Governor Gray, since he seemed to have been so good at dealing with Māori in the past. But things had changed. Waikato Māori were much more suspicious of Gray thanks to his pushy attitude towards land sales. And Gray was extremely suspicious of Waikato Māori too. To him, Kingitanga were rebels directly challenging his authority over New Zealand. I mean, according to the English version of the Treaty of Waitangi, Māori had ceded all the rights and powers of sovereignty to the Crown. How can you give up sovereignty and then set up your own sovereign? It's the same fundamental problem with the treaty we talked about last episode. The two different versions say two totally different things about sovereignty. But the real problem for Governor Gray was Kingitanga's opposition to land sales. Gray was under very heavy pressure from the settlers to get Māori to sell more land, but Kingitanga refused. They could clearly see that losing land also meant losing wealth and power. Still, Gray was a sly dude and he had a few ideas of how to deal with Kingitanga. First, Gray tried to undermine them by setting up a network of Māori councils, or runanga, to lessen Kingitanga's authority over Māori. But this plan failed, partly because Kingitanga's allies held firm and partly because Governor Gray tried to cram former enemy tribes like Te Arua, Ngāti Awa and Ngāti Rangi into a single runanga. Not going to happen. Yeah, so Governor Gray came up with another plan. All through the early 1860s, he sent letters to the imperial authorities in London saying the Kingitanga tribes were secretly planning to attack the city of Auckland. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Yeah, that was complete nonsense. Kingitanga had no plans to attack Auckland. Like we said before, they might have been against land sales, but they still saw themselves as loyal subjects of Queen Victoria. But the colonial authorities took Gray's letters very seriously and sent enormous numbers of troops to New Zealand from all across the British Empire.
Gray wrote an ultimatum to the Waikato chiefs, saying that unless they pledged their loyalty to Queen Victoria, he would invade and confiscate their land. But before that message even reached those chiefs, Governor Gray launched his invasion. The Waikato War was by far the largest conflict of the New Zealand wars. Grey eventually had 10,000 imperial troops, plus another 4,000 colonial soldiers and a few hundred kūpapa Māori, Māori who were allied with the government. Just to put that in perspective, the Crown's forces were as big as a quarter of the entire Māori population. And taking them on was the Kingitanga, which had about 5,000 warriors at most. But Kingitanga were well prepared for an attack. Many of them were veterans of the musket wars, and the anti-artillery tactics invented by Napui in the Northern War had now spread to Māori all over the North Island. There were three lines of defence blocking the British invasion. The most extensive was the Paterangi Line, a network of forts, bunkers and trenches which stretched from Te Awamutu to the Waipa River. The British General Duncan Cameron could see that attacking those defences head-on would be a disaster. So instead, he sent 1,200 troops through the bush at night, bypassing the fortifications. The next morning, those troops launched a raid on the village of Rangiafia. What happened next is the subject of a lot of debate. But amid the fighting, five or six soldiers and at least 12 Māori were killed, maybe many more Māori. The dead included women, old people and children. Some were trapped and burned to death in a whare. This is a really nasty chapter of the war for Waikato Māori, and it remains really controversial. Kingitanga thought that Rangiafia was a safe haven. Nine days earlier, they'd told the Anglican Bishop of New Zealand, George Selwyn, that they were keeping their non-combatants in this town. They believed Bishop Selwyn had passed this message on to the British General Duncan Cameron, and that General Cameron had agreed not to attack Rangiafia. Here's how a Waikato leader called Wiramu Tikumete explained things. General Cameron told us to send our women and children to Rangiafia, where they should remain unmolested. But he went away from Patarangi with his soldiers after them, and the women and children were killed, and some of them burned in their houses. You did not go to fight the men. You left them and went away to fight with the women and little children. But it's unclear if General Cameron really promised not to attack Rangiafia. The town was a major part of Kingitanga's military supply line, and historians like James Balich think it's very unlikely Cameron would have agreed to leave it untouched. Balich says it's possible there was some misunderstanding or misinterpretation in the conversations between Māori, Bishop Selwyn and General Cameron. On the other hand, another historian, Vincent O'Malley, points out it's also possible that British leaders misled Kingitanga on purpose so that Rangiafia would be more vulnerable to attack. Either way, the attack on Rangiafia had two major consequences for the wider war. 
First, it demonstrated that Cameron's forces had bypassed the Patarangi line. This fact forced Waikato warriors to abandon Patarangi and retreat. Second, it seriously damaged the faith of Kingitanga Māori and European missionaries. Many believed Bishop Selwyn had deliberately conspired to betray them. This helped fuel the rise of new religious movements, which played a significant role later on in the New Zealand wars. And we'll talk a lot more about that next episode. About a month after Rangiaupia, 300 Māori made a stand at Orako Pa near Te Awamutu. But Orako was not as well supplied as Paterangi and it was easily surrounded. The defenders held out for three days when the British put them under siege, but they eventually ran out of food, water and ammunition. The defenders were offered a final chance to surrender. Instead, Liwi Maniapoto sent this famous message to the British Army. Ehoa, ka whawhai tonu mātou, ake, ake, ake. Friend, we will fight on forever, forever and forever. The British then offered to give the women and children a chance to flee, but they refused. One high-ranking wahine, Ahumaite Pairata, stepped up to the parapet and shouted this to the British troops. Kite mate ngā tāne, me mate anō ngā wahine, me ngā tamariki. If the men die, the women and children must die also. The defenders at Orako beat back several attacks, but the situation was hopeless. They made a run for it, and as they ran, they were cut down by the British. About half the defenders were killed. According to witnesses on both sides, those casualties included wounded women who were bayoneted in cold blood by colonial soldiers. The stories from Orako are horrific, but also heroic. For example, Ahumaiti Pairata made it out alive. Here's how the story was told by the early New Zealand historian James Cowan. She was shot in the right side, the bullet going through her body and coming out on her left side. She was shot through the right shoulder, the bullet went out her back. She was also hit in the wrist, hand and arm. Yet, wounded almost unto death as she was, she struggled through the swamp of death that lay between the Arakau Ridge and the Punyu River the line of retreat on which scores of her comrades were killed. She survived. This was the end of the Waikato War. The survivors of Orako crossed into the lands of Ngāti Maniapoto. Today, we call that land the King Country because it became the last bastion of Kingitanga. At this point, Governor Gray and General Cameron decided to end their pursuit of the main Kingitanga army. The land they'd taken in the Waikato region was the really good farmland. The land in the King Country was less valuable. Instead, they struck east at Kingitanga's allies in Tauranga and the Bay of Plenty. But Tauranga Māori weren't easy pickings. At the Battle of Gate Pa, Ngai Te Rangi and their allies used the same anti-artillery defence tactics that we've mentioned earlier, and it was brutally effective. 
A hundred British troops were killed or wounded as they tried to storm Gate Park under a hail of musket fire. The British turned and ran. 230 Māori had defeated nearly 1,700 Imperial troops. After the battle ended, the Māori defenders brought water to injured soldiers. Some even took them home to treat their wounds. A few months later, the British launched a surprise attack at Teranga, inflicting heavy losses on Māori who were busy trying to build a new pa. Tauranga Māori eventually negotiated a peace deal with the British, but Gate Pa left a huge impression on both sides of the conflict. The authorities back in London were furious. To understand why, you have to zoom out a bit from New Zealand. The British had to deal with a lot of wars around this time. They were fighting in India, Africa, China, the Middle East, Japan. Plus, they were dealing with the aftermath of the Crimean War, which cost the lives of more than 20,000 British soldiers. And in the middle of all this, Grey basically tricked them into sending thousands of troops to New Zealand and then got a lot of them killed, even though they massively outnumbered and outgunned their opponents. Eventually, the authorities in London sent this letter to Governor Grey. 10,000 English troops had been placed at your disposal for objects of great imperial concern and not for the attainment of any merely local object. You will not continue the expenditure of blood and treasure longer than is absolutely necessary for the establishment of a just and enduring peace. A just and enduring peace is not what happened. But we do see a bit of a lull in the fighting as British troops start to be shipped out of New Zealand. From now on, if the Pākehā authorities wanted to pick a fight, they'd have to rely on colonists and their Māori allies. This really changed the character of the New Zealand wars. It made them more personal. Plus, we see religion play a bigger role in the conflict. And all of that combined to make the final chapter of the New Zealand wars a very, very dark story. That's all coming up in our next episode. The Aotearoa History Show is a 14-part series made possible by the RNZ New Zealand On Air Digital Innovation Fund. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. It's written and produced by William Ray and co-presented by Lee Marama McLaughlin. The sound engineer is William Saunders and it is directed by Duncan Smith. Historical fact-checking by Basil Keane and the Ministry of Culture and Heritage, especially David Green. Archival audio from Nga Taonga Sound and Vision... A video version of the Aotearoa History Show is available online via the RNZ webpage or on YouTube. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.